A couple months ago, my wife got a text from a friend asking her a question. And the question was for her as well as for me. And the question was this. It was, do you guys know any book that would help my son keep his life centered on Jesus? Um, Her son was in his 20s. And he was a believer in Jesus, right? Um, He believed in Jesus, um, had, had pledged his faith in Jesus, but he had struggled to follow Jesus, and his life had been really up and down as a result. Um, and he had been in and out of trouble, been various places, and so I'm guessing there had been some down moment that had prompted this text. Um, and so the text was, do you guys know any book that maybe you could recommend that he could read that might help him figure out how to live his life centered on Jesus? Um, and, and I... I uh, I reflected, I thought, I looked at my bookshelves, right? I, I you know, I Googled, um, and I thought, man, there's a lot of really great books I know about various components of spiritual growth, spiritual living, right? But for the life of me, I could not think of a single book that I could recommend to this mom for her son. Um, and, and so the question has been bouncing around in my head for the last couple months. What does it mean to live your life centered on Jesus? What's involved in that? What does that look like? How do we do that, right? And what would motivate a mom of a 20-something-year-old son to text a friend that question? Is there a book that could help my son live his life centered on Jesus? Um, And I'm sure there's probably a variety of reasons that she would send that text, right? But as a parent myself and a parent of you know, adult kids, and I care about their faith and their faithfulness to Jesus, I can imagine one of the central reasons that she uh, sent the text and she was concerned about that is because she honestly believes that his life would be better if he would live it centered on Jesus, right? Like, my son's life would actually go smoother and would be better if he could just figure out how to live his life the way he says he wants to live his life, centered on Jesus. And I think she's right. I would agree with that. Like, I honestly believe that your life and my life would be better if our lives were centered on Jesus. Like, and the reason I think that is because I'm firmly convinced that that living your life centered on Jesus is living your life in sync with reality. Like it's living according to the way things are. Like like you're not grinding your gears against the way the world actually is made to work. When you live your life centered on Jesus, you're you're actually synced up with the way the world actually is. And thus, your life would be better. I firmly believe that, and I'm pretty convinced that's why she asked that question. Like, she believes that too, that there is a way you're made, you're designed to function, and it has Jesus at the center of it. That's what I think. And so, I want to reflect on that with you today. (laughs) Um, And just to start, let me just say, in a nutshell, here's, here's honestly what if I were to give sort of like a one-sentence summary of what I think it means to live your life centered on Jesus, here's, here's what I would say it is. It's this. It's that a life centered on Jesus means Jesus is the ultimate authority of your life, 
and the ultimate focus of your life. If you and I are living our life centered on Jesus, it means Jesus is the ultimate authority and the ultimate focus of our life. In other words, he's, he's how we live, the ultimate authority. He tells us how to live. He's how we live, and he's why we live the way we live. He's the ultimate authority and the ultimate focus of our life. And so because it's the beginning of the year, and because oftentimes at the beginning of the year we're thinking about, well, what, what would my life look like at the end of the year if I lived it maybe more according to my goals, right? I just thought, why don't we start the year thinking about this question that my wife and I got asked a couple months ago. What would it look like to live our life centered on Jesus? How do we do that? How do we do that? Um, and interestingly enough, when you read through particularly the New Testament, right, where we you know, talk about Jesus, it never actually uses that phrase. That's our phrase. That's our language, like being centered on Jesus. That's sort of, I don't know when it developed or where it developed, but that's sort of like an American Christian sort of phrase, live your life centered. The New Testament doesn't use that phrase. Nevertheless, it has the idea and it uses a, a pretty consistent word picture, a pretty consistent idea for what it looks like to live your life centered on Jesus. So I just want to look at a couple passages where I think this consistent idea shows up to help us think through how can I live my life centered on Jesus, all right? And let's start with a fairly familiar passage. It's John chapter 15. But before we read it, I need you to have a picture in your mind, okay? Because Jesus is going to use a word picture in John 15, and it's a word picture that, like, virtually everyone in his original audience, all the Jews that he's speaking to, they would have just immediately had the same image in their mind. And the reason was because the word picture he uses was everywhere present in their world. Uh, and so here's what you need to picture. You need to picture some sort of trellis and a grapevine, and a grapevine growing along that trellis. And since it's winter, it's going to be hard to picture the grapevine is alive. But imagine that we're somewhere in summer, all right? And the grapevine is leafed out, and fruit is beginning to grow on this grapevine, okay? That's the picture that we have to have in mind when we read John 15. It's the night before Jesus crucified. He's with his closest friends. Um, and this is what he says to them in John 15. He says, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. It's the grapevine. And it was an image that was incredibly familiar to the Jewish people because it was just part of their cultural, agricultural heritage, right? Like everywhere, people grew grapes. Um, and it, it, grapevines were everywhere. And so it actually had become an image for the people of God themselves. In fact, for example, Isaiah chapter 5 uses the image of the grapevine for Israel, God's people in the Old Testament. Um, and, and basically it says they're a bad grapevine and they're not producing fruit. Well, here comes Jesus here in John 15 saying to his disciples, I'm the true grapevine. And all his disciples would know what that meant. Like, like the true faithful one who is truly faithful to God and who's actually doing what God wants and who's actually able to produce the fruit God intends to produce, that's me. 
And my father, i.e. God, he, he's the vine dresser. He's the one who tends the, the vineyard and takes care of the vines and makes sure they're taken care of so that they can produce the actual fruit they're supposed to produce. I'm the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Then he goes on in verse 2 and he says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, the vine dresser, his father, God, he takes away. He removes it. Like, what good is a branch on a grapevine that doesn't grow grapes? It's not worth much, right? So we're going to get our pruning shears out. We'll lop that branch off. We'll get rid of that one because it's not growing any grapes. Um, And he says, uh, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it might bear more fruit. So even if you're a branch that grows fruit, there's still going to be some pruning shears. Still going to be a little trimming, a little cutting, right? In other, so that it will produce more. In fact, the, the word translated pruned in this translation literally is clean. He cleans it so that it might bear more fruit. He gets rid of all the, the, the useless branches, right? All the extra shoots, all, right? Anything extra. He cleans off all that unnecessary stuff so that it, all the energy can go to producing good fruit. Right? He prunes it. He cleans it. Then he says to his disciples, you are already pruned. You're already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. And so the method that God's going to use for cleaning, for pruning the branches of the vine vine, is his word. And he's going to use his word to clean them up and to trim them and prune them and make them everything he wants them to be. You're You're already pruned. You're already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. And then he says this, verse 4. This is what I want us to really pay attention to. Abide in me, and I in you. Abide in me, and I in you. Now, depending on the translation you're looking at, it might say remain in me. It might say continue in me. Um, This translation says abide. Pay attention to that. Whatever word we use there, it's the idea of like you're attached. Like you're connected. There's this sense of, I'm living in Jesus. I'm rooted in Jesus. I'm connected to Jesus. Abide in me. And he says, if you do that, guess what? I'm going to abide in you. In other words, I'm the true vine, and my life will begin flowing into you. As you stay connected to me, I will pour my life into you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Right? Just picture that. Grapevine. Here's a branch that says, you know what? I don't need the vine. I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to do it the way I want to do. And he just pops himself off the branch and he's, it's not going to work for him, right? You have an apple tree, any branch that you cut off the apple tree, not going to grow any apples, right? Uh, As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, Unless it remains, abides, stays connected to the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, what happens? He bears much fruit. Fruit will just happen if you abide in the vine. Right? Every branch that abides in me, he bears not just a little bit of fruit, not some fruit, 
much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, there's no fruit-bearing possibility in your life. Apart from me, life's not going to go very well. You're, the, the humanness that you were designed for and the way you were meant to live and the, the productive, fruitful, God-honoring kind of life that he created you for and designed you for, it's just not going to work apart from me. You can do nothing. Now, Jesus says something similar at a different point in John's gospel, in John chapter 8. So turn to John chapter 8. I want to look at just two verses there. Uh, in this context, in John 8, Jesus speaking to a crowd, and it's a mixed bag of, of people. And in that crowd, some of the Jews in that crowd, a good number of them actually decided, I think he's the Messiah, and they believed in him. And so as he's talking to the crowd, he says specifically to those Jews who had believed in him, he says this. Look at John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. It says, so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word. Now, that word translated continue here is the same word that was translated abide in John 15. It's the same word. If you remain in my word, if you abide in my word, if you stay connected to my word. And what's his word? It's his teaching. It's the things he taught, right? Like if you dwell in, continue in, remain in, abide in my teaching, then uh, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the, what is it? You will know the truth. What's truth? Truth is any statement about the way things are that actually lines up with the way things actually are. If you say it's this and it really is that, it's true. If you say it's this and it's really that, it's false, right? That's truth. If you abide in Jesus' teaching, he says, you will know the truth. In other words, you will know the way things actually are, the way the world is made to work, the way you're made to work, the way life is made to work. You will know the truth, and the truth will do what? Truth will set you free. Now, let me ask you a question. Wouldn't you want to live the kind of life that's rooted in the way the world actually is and leads to this flourishing, fruitful, free sort of human life? Wouldn't you want that? Don't we want a life where it's like, I feel like my life is actually working. It's, I'm living the way I'm made to live. I'm living the way the world is made for me to live. It's fruitful. It's flourishing. It's productive. It works. It's true. It's free. And Jesus says, if you remain in my teaching, if you abide in me, that's the case. You'll know the truth. You'll be fruitful and productive. Your life will work the way it's supposed to work. Now, another passage that uses totally different imagery but communicates the same sort of ideas, these two in the Gospel of John, is Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1 takes this same idea, different imagery, different word picture, but same point. This is what it says. Psalm 1 says, how blessed is the man or woman? How blessed is the person who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked? Uh, what's the counsel of the wicked? It's all the ideas about how to do life that come from the world around us, not from God. In the context 
of the Psalms, the Psalms speak in very dramatic language. It has two categories of people, the wicked and the righteous. And the wicked are those who don't know God, who don't know God's truth, who don't know God's ways and live life according to the best thing they can figure out. The righteous doesn't mean they're perfect. It just means they actually know God and they know God's word and they're, they're trying to follow God. They're part of God's people. So to, to live your life according to the counsel of wicked would be to kind of do it your way, according to the wisdom of the world, according to the wisdom of the culture around us, right? He says, how blessed is the person who doesn't do that, who doesn't walk, carry out their life according to the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Scoffers are those who, who mock God, mock God's law, mock God's wisdom, mock Jesus, mock his, his smarts for life, right? You, you, don't, you don't sit there. We're not going to participate in that. But this, the, pers- the blessed person is blessed because they delight in the law of the Lord. The word translated law is Torah in Hebrew, and we hear that, we usually think law rules, but Torah just means instruction, way, guidance, right? So the law of the Lord is his way for life, his instruction for life. He delights in the instruction and the wisdom and the guidance of the Lord, and in his law, he meditates day and night. What does it mean to meditate means to, to reflect on, to think about, to dwell on. He's, he's talking it to himself as he's going about his day, right? He's driving in the car, and he's, he's pondering Jesus, and he's thinking about some scripture, and he's t- you know, saying it out loud to himself. He's got some of it memorized, and he's soaked himself in it. He's remaining in it because it's a part of him, and he can just think about it all the time, day and night. Uh, he delights in it, and he reflects on it, and thinks about it, meditates on it. And what's going to happen for this person? who meditates on the law of the Lord, who dwells in the law of the Lord, he will be like a tree. That's what? It's planted. It's firmly planted uh, next to streams of water. And it yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf doesn't wither. In everything he does, he prospers. He flourishes. Similar to that grapevine in John 15, right? Like, this tree is planted. It's rooted. It's connected. It's attached. It's abiding right there where it's supposed to abide, next to a stream of living water, and now it's flourishing. Who wouldn't want a flourishing life? Who wouldn't want a flourishing life? Again, I suspect that's why our friend sent us the text. Like, is there, how, what, what could help my son stay centered on Jesus? I want him to have a flourishing Psalm 1 kind of life, right? Do you hear it? John 15, John 8, Psalm 1, the key idea. They don't use the, the picture of centered per se, but they use this key image, this key word picture for what it looks like to live your life centered on Jesus, and it's attached. It's abiding, It's connected, right? Like planted. You're like a branch that's attached to the vine. You're like a tree that's planted deep in the soil next to living water. It's abiding, remaining, continuing, connected, attached. That's the key idea. So so here's, here's what the Bible would say to you and me. 
if we want to actually live our life centered on Jesus. Being centered on Jesus equals living connected to Jesus. Being centered on Jesus equals living your life deeply attached to Jesus, deeply connected. You're abiding in him. You're abiding in his teaching, his word. You're connected to him. You're doing life with him. You're not doing life on your own. You're not doing life your own way. You're not doing life to the best way you can figure it out. You're not doing life according to all the cute memes of the culture around us. You're doing life with Jesus according to the wisdom of Jesus. He's the ultimate authority and the ultimate focus of your life. You're connected. You're rooted. You're planted. You're attached. You're continuing in him. Um, <clears throat> we got a few kids in, in the room, right? What's this? It's a bike tire, right? Yeah, a, 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 last spring, my wife and I decided, actually, the, the bike this came off of, I've had for like 20 years. Um, and in the first 10 years of having this bike, I, I rode the bike pretty consistently, actually. Uh, I used to ride to work and back on a regular basis and all that, so I rode the bike a lot. The last 10 years, not much bike riding happening. Um, and, and so last spring, my wife and I you know, decided we, we should ride our bikes, get back to getting some exercise riding bikes together. So we bought my wife a bike, um, and I busted out my old bike, and got on my bike and started pedaling it around to make sure it still worked. <laughs> it had been so long. And I had some pretty good tire wobble. Uh, which meant I had brake drag, right? Every time it wobbled, right? Which meant the bike didn't roll very smoothly. Why do you get tire wobble? Because your spokes are not uh, properly, properly attached to the rim. Right? Um, and as a result, the, the tire doesn't run right, and the bike doesn't run right. And that's actually a really good picture of what uh, the scriptures teach us about living your life centered on Jesus. Um, to live your life centered on Jesus means that all the spokes of your life are properly connected to the hub. And the hub is Jesus. That all the facets of your life are actually properly attached, properly connected. And so your family life, like let's start with your marriage. Jesus is the ultimate authority and the ultimate why, the ultimate focus of your marriage. So the way Jesus says to do marriage goes, even if it goes against what you think is best or what culture says is best, Jesus gets, he gets he's the ultimate authority. He gets to tell you how to do marriage. So you do it his way because you're living your life deeply connected to him. Right? Parenting and family life. Um, you, you're going to do that Jesus' way. So what, what does it mean to raise your kids uh, up in the Lord? What does that look like? How would Jesus raise your kids if Jesus were in your place? What's his wisdom for that? What does he teach? What's his teaching, his word on that? So you're going you're gonna to learn Jesus' way, and you're going to raise your kids his way. Right? Um, Relationships to extended family while we're talking about family. Like, we're going to do that his way. We're going to figure out what it looks like and how we can do that his way. Uh, your job. Let's talk about that. Like, okay, 
since uh, that's part of my life, a key part of my life. We spend a lot of hours on our job. I'm going to let Jesus tell me how to do my job. Uh, if Jesus were doing my job and had to interact with my coworkers and carry out my functions and my tasks and my job, how would Jesus do that? What does his word teach me about how to work and how to do work, right? And so I'm going to figure out how to, that spoke can be properly attached to the hub. Or if you're a student, school, what would it look like to do school Jesus' way for Jesus' purposes according to the goals that Jesus would have for you? How would Jesus do that? What about your finances? Like, if, if you're living your life centered on Jesus, what does Jesus say about money and how we should view money and feel about money and use our money and all of that? Right? Like, we're living our life deeply connected to Jesus. Right? Every facet of our life Every single one. Our neighbors in our neighborhood. How would Jesus want me to conduct myself as a good neighbor in my neighborhood? What would that look like? How could I do that? What does Jesus say about that? that this is what it means to live your life centered on Jesus. Where all the spokes of your life are deeply connected to Jesus. And you're doing your life the way Jesus would do life if he were living in your place. You're learning from him how to do life. That, that's ultimately what it means to live your life centered on Jesus. It means that you're living your life connected with him according to his wisdom and according to his way. And here's the thing. If, if Jesus is the hub of reality, right? Like if he's the hub of reality, which scripture says he is, all things were created by him and for him. So he knows how it's supposed to work. He's the reason it's supposed to work. So if Jesus is the hub of reality and your life is deeply connected to him, then he's, he's going to direct your life to work the proper way. And there's a certain goodness and richness that comes when we live life the way we're designed to live it. Um, doesn't mean it's always going to be easy, right? There's still some pruning that he might need to do. Doesn't mean it's always going to be a piece of cake. Doesn't mean there won't be suffering. It just means that we're going to even take the spoke of suffering and attach it to Jesus and how can I suffer with Jesus and for Jesus according to the wisdom of Jesus, right? There's going to be hardship, difficulty, even, but, but there's a certain goodness and richness that comes with it. Why? Because we're living in sync with the way the world is designed to function. We're living according to the way we're made to function. And we're not going to be grinding the gears of our human nature anymore. We're actually going to be meshing with reality. And our life will begin to work right. And we won't have tire wobble and break drag. Our life will work. Why? Because Jesus, because Jesus knows what's best for you and for me. And if we believe that, that's what it means to trust him. We just trust that he knows best. He knows the best way to do it. So we're going to do life his way. And here's the thing. Jesus is worth that. 
Jesus is worth that. He's worth being the ultimate authority of your life. He's worth being the ultimate focus of your life. Like, we, we come together on Sundays in church. We sing songs. We can be stirred in our emotions. But don't let it stop when the, when the songs are over. Jesus is always worth that. Whether it feels like it or not, whether we're feeling it in the moment or not, he is worth it. Um, as King of kings and Lord of lords, he's worth it. As the one who laid down his life for you and for me, he's worth that. As the one who's restoring all things in the universe, he's worth that. As the one who's the lover of all mankind, he's worth that. He's worth attaching every part of your life to. He's worth giving up everything for. He's worth arranging your whole life around. He is that incredible, that wonderful, that wise, that he is worth it for you and for me. And so, so as we enter into the new year, would we, would we live our lives centered on Jesus, deeply connected, deeply attached to him? And here's the thing. That's not going to happen on accident. It's not going to happen. You're not just going to wake up one morning and like, huh, I'm like deeply connected to Jesus. It doesn't happen on accident. It has to happen on purpose, uh, which means we have to be deliberate. We have to be intentional. Right? It doesn't matter <clears throat> which relationship it is. Um, deep loving attachments always take intentional effort. Whether that's with your husband or your wife, whether that's with your kids, deep loving attachments always take intentional effort, and the same is true with Jesus. To live your life deeply connected to him, it's going to take deliberate, intentional effort. Um, You're not going to drift into discipleship. It just doesn't work that way. So let me, just, let me just offer just a few, um, like, keys, okay, as we enter into this year. If you want to actually live your life deeply connected to Jesus, centered on him, here's, the, like, the ABCs of doing that. <clears throat> They're, like, the, the fundamental keys. It takes spiritual practices of all kinds. There's a variety of them. But, but when we look at these texts, you hear some key ones. The first one is you got to read your Bible, How can you continue in Jesus' word if the only time you actually engage with scriptures is when you're in this building? That's not, that's not very continuing. That's like sporadic and occasional. So if we want to abide in Jesus and remain deeply connected to him, we've actually got to read our Bible. Um, in fact, Sociological studies have actually, a number of studies over the last handful of years have actually demonstrated somebody who um, says they're a Christian, says they want to follow Jesus, believes in Jesus, but engages in their Bible only like once or twice a week, looks almost no different than their non-believing friends around them. But somebody who says they believe in Jesus and say they want to follow Jesus and reads their Bible more often than not, that means four out of seven, at least four out of seven days a week is significantly, has a significant different kind of life than their non-believing friends around them. Like, 
like reading your Bible, engaging with it, memorizing it, meditating on it, studying it on your own and with friends, more often than not, four out of seven days will lead to greater life transformation than just about anything else. So if we, if we want to live a life centered on Jesus, then we have to read our Bible. We have to read our Bible. Um, second, we have to pray. Again, we're talking the ABCs. We can't take these things for granted. We have to pray. Um, how can you have a deep, loving connection with a person that you rarely ever talk to? That you rarely ever spend any time with? Whose company you don't enjoy? This is a scary thought. But if you don't spend any time with Jesus uh, because you really don't enjoy his company, why would you think heaven's going to be good? What makes heaven heavenly is Jesus, God, his beauty, his wisdom, his glory. And if we don't enjoy his presence so that we rarely ever spend time with him, why would heaven actually be enjoyable and good to us? So if we're going to live deeply connected to Jesus, we're going to have to pray and pray consistently, regularly. Um, and again, it's going to take some planning and it's going to take some effort. When are you going to do these things? What's your plan? Um, so you got to read your Bible. you got to pray. And then the, the third ABC I would mention is this, is um, we is just as important as me. We is just as important as me. And what I mean by that is nobody follows Jesus by themselves. Nobody follows Jesus alone. We're not designed to. It's not good for man to be. We're social beings by nature. And God designed us not only for relationships with himself, but relationships with each other. And that's why there in the Garden of Eden, you have Adam and Eve living in a perfect environment, in a perfect relationship with God. You have Adam by himself. And God says it's not good for man to be alone. Because even in a perfect environment with a perfect relationship with God, it wasn't complete. We need each other. In order to follow Jesus, we need each other. Um, in this culture of ours where increasing hostility against the way of Jesus, increasing distrust of and disdain for the way of Jesus, we need each other to support and to encourage and to call us out and to challenge us and to pray for us and to be there for us when, and to point out the blind spots in our life. We need each other. We is just as important as me in living a deeply attached life to Jesus. In fact, once again, um, <clears throat> Modern like science has caught up with the Bible, and uh, neuroscience has now discovered <clears throat> that um, loving community, joy-filled loving community, does far more to actually transform human behavior than just trying hard on your own. Like when you're part of a, a place where you belong and they're happy to see you and there's shared values and shared beliefs and shared behavioral goals, that actually facilitates greater change and they can track it in neuroscience in the brain than if you just try to do it alone, go it alone. We is just as important as me. And so if we're going to actually live a life deeply centered on Jesus, we need each other. We need to encourage each other. 
and pray for each other. We need people who know us and we know them. People who um, are excited to see us and share the same values and behavioral goals that we have. And so those are just three ABCs. Now there's other spiritual practices that are important, um, but like a grapevine that, that needs a trellis to support itself on, we need a plan for living centered to, on Jesus. It's not going to happen on accident. What's your plan? When are you going to read the Bible? When are you going to pray? Who's in your life that you can intentionally begin to invite in to, to be a spiritual friend and to encourage you in the way of Jesus and you can encourage them? What does that look like? Um, and I, I'll, turn, I'll turn 53 in five months. <clears throat> um, here's what I've learned. I started walking with Jesus in 1984. I have learned that there are seasons in your spiritual journey. And there are times when I was living deeply attached to Jesus. And guess what? It didn't just last for the next 30-something years. It ebbed and flowed, right? It shifted and it's changed. And what I've come to realize is it doesn't matter how long we walk with Jesus, whether we're brand new or not, we have to keep revisiting this. We have to keep looking in the mirror with self-evaluation and self-examination and say, where am I at? Am I passionately following Jesus right now at this stage in my life? If not, what do I need to do? And so I, I don't know where you're at. I don't know how long you've walked with Jesus. I don't know, what, are you in a place where you're living deeply connected to him already? Are you in a place where you used to and you're looking in the mirror and you're like, yeah, that was 10 years ago and I probably need to actually look at my life and talk to Jesus and figure out what would it look like to do it at this stage. Maybe you're like, I, I think I, I want to start, <laughs> right? Like, I don't know where you're at. But wherever you're at, you can't just drift. You can't drift. It's going to take deliberate, intentional effort to live deeply connected to Jesus. And Jesus is worth it. And the life he offers is worth it. At the end of that passage in John 15, Jesus says, I've spoken these things to you that my joy might be in you and your joy might be overflowing. Do you want that? Do you want joy that overflows, right? Like just bubbles out of you? Jesus says in John chapter 10, I've come that they might have life and have it abundantly overflowing. Do you want that? This is what Jesus offers. Jesus offers joy overflowing and life abundance. Jesus is the treasure chest of wisdom and knowledge, according to Colossians chapter 2. He offers wisdom for life. He's worth it. He's worth saying, I'm going to take all the spokes of my life, and I'm going to have them deeply connected to Jesus, because he's worth it. He's worth it.